0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, you know, this is Dr. Rob from Seeking Integrity. And I don't invite a lot of guests on a second time. It's not that they're... Are not interesting to me it's just usually or you but it's mostly the case that people have kind of say their thing and they're done and their primary message really comes out in the first discussion here on the podcast But this is someone that I wanted to have a second discussion with. Uh, Dr. Ken Adams is a colleague, a friend, and if you listen to the podcast, he and I have the number one podcast in all of these things because I think what he has to say about early parenting and enmeshment and how addicts are kind of formed is informing a lot of people. So Dr. Ken Adams just wrote a new book, and I want to talk a little bit about him. We're going to chat about it because it's directly related to sex addiction and the issues that we treat. Dr. Kenneth M. Adams began his professional career in 1981, treating children, adolescents, and their families. In 1985, he began practice private practice with the Children of Alcoholic Parents program, which was an outpatient program for the treatment of adults who'd grown up in alcoholic families. It was there that he began to notice that many of these clients had addictions and enmeshment issues, two of his primary specialties today. He wrote his first professional article in 1987 on covert incest and sex addiction in alcoholic families, and has since written three books and numerous peer-reviewed articles on the topic. He was the co-recipient of the 2021 Reader's Choice Award for Article of the Year. Today, Dr. Adams maintains his clinical practice and directorship at Kenneth Adams and Associates. He's a third certified sex addiction therapist, uh, a supervisor, a training facilitator, and an EMDR practitioner. He is constantly developing new program services to meet the needs of addicts and their families, as well as the adult children of
1: child abuse. Welcome, Dr. Adams, or welcome back. Sounds like somebody should retire soon what you just described. So <laughs> nice to Isn't be that here. Isn't odd? <laughs> when other people read our bios. I, I think, know, I know. Are they talking about me? Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Rob. Always nice to be with you. And this new book is uh, a little twist on my other topics, but right, right in line with what we talk about.
0: Well, first, before we get to the book, I want to understand better and just revisit. You know, we really are a foundational clinician and author. And I don't say that, but everybody, but you've really evolved well, you. a, an arena of conversation which I completely see in almost every client we have mm-hmm. uh, around enmeshment. And you know, Alice Miller back in the day talked about narcissistic parenting and in books that were hard to read. And here you are evolving that and really looking at it in terms of addiction rather in a general way. Can I ask just to get started about the enmeshment question? Like, What, what is it that happens to kids, because we're going to revisit this, that happens to kids that leads them to having the problems we deal with in adult life? Can you just give a, a brief overview of what enmeshment with a parent means?
1: Yeah. So, and, and that is to, to topic because the new book is on adult children of sex addict parents. And one of the roles that we see in those families is the child who is enmeshed with the parent, where they have taken on and absorbed the parent's loneliness and problems and come to their assistance by being a surrogate husband or wife or caretaker and have intertwined their own identities and wishes with the parents, where their natural unfolding of of separateness and autonomy and their own self-actualization is lost to the parents' needs. And so enmeshment is too much loyalty, too much guilt, too much intertwined with the parents. So enmeshment really is an involvement with a family member or parent, or for that matter, a spouse, in which there is a loss of the self and in the service of being available to the parent at a cost to your own unfolding. And we see that cutting across cultures, orientations, and so forth in which, and it particularly shows up when you, when, when you look at somebody's romantic relationships. So the romantic partner always becomes second tier, second fiddle to the uh, enmeshed man or woman's parent. Something
0: tells me this is why you wrote the book Married to Mom. Absolutely. And by the way, folks, he wrote a book called Married to Mom. And I think that has something to do with what you're really talking about.
1: Absolutely. When he's married to mom, also silently seduced. And it talks about this yes. inappropriate bond between parent and child. You know, as a parent, you know, I have a twenty-year-old son. We were chatting about him earlier. I, I understand the process of letting go. You know, we love our children, we want the best for them, and there's no replacing, And you know, I've done a lot of cool things in my life and you know, a lot, lot of, made a lot of contributions, but I have to say that probably none of them have compared to the sense of purpose and a love and value I've experienced as a parent. And the truth of the matter is, is there's time for that to sort of end and for that young man or young woman to move out on their own. And it's the parent's job to take the loss. It is not the adult child's job to comfort the parent in their grief.
0: Let me touch on that briefly. And I know we're going to talk about the work, I
1: promise. I really do
0: want to talk about your book because people have been screaming (laughs) for it for a long time. But I just want to give a sort of devil's advocate in the sense that, Let's say my, my, let's say my father passed away and I'm, you know, seven years old or five years old Mm -hmm. and my mom, you know, is very lonely and very sad. And, you know, I'm sort of the last connection she has to my dad or her husband. And Mm -hmm. so she really leans into me for comfort and for distraction and for, you know, the light of my life kind of thing, which to me makes a lot of sense. But you're saying that in, even in that situation or in that situation, that there's a line that's crossed where it becomes more than just, you know, being a loving child and, and knowing what makes mom happy and having fun with her. And what, what line gets crossed? Or is it the consistency of something being crossed that leads to the adult problems you're talking
1: about? Well, I think primarily it's the consistency. I, I think that the more chronic that relationship feeds the, the need of the parent and less of the child, uh, the more difficult it is. You know, if you were to draw a line in the sand, I'd say it's physical sexual abuse that once that's crossed, you have a one event issue. But in terms of this enmeshment, what you just described, I mean, there's nothing wrong with an empathic child. In some ways, we have a lack of empathy in our culture right now in some some ways. Um, So empathy, having a child say, Mommy, I'm worried about you. Nothing wrong with that. That's very sweet, honey. But don't you worry about me. I'm going to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. It's always it's always the parent's job to make sure that they stay in charge of what is a normal love affair between child and parent. And ultimately, their job is to see that that child has an opportunity to not only bond with them. So you're talking about an attachment to a parent, right? A loving attachment out of concern. Okay, fair enough. But the other part of parenting, the other part of what makes a functional adult is not just a secure bond, but also the ability to separate. The ability to separate without feeling guilty, burdened, and obligated. And if the parent has leaned on the child too much, you just can't do that, particularly if you're the empathic child, right? The more empathic you are, the more you worry, the more you take on your mother or father's problems. You know, one, one of the things I've done recently, and, and you may have, I may have done it with us when we did our workshop together, um, and I'm forgetting because I've just introduced it fairly recently, but I've been reading. Khalil Gibran's poem on children. He's the Mm. famous Lebanese poet from another century, right? And a different culture, not in the Western culture. And he said something very powerful in that poem. He said, uh, he called it on children. Your children are not your children. They are life's longing for itself. They come Mm. through you, but not from you. They belong not to you. And so Here's a man who is an earlier century and a different culture. He was, he was Lebanese. And I think he had it right. And in the Amesh the relationship, that is reversed. And the child, out of both their empathy and sometimes the narcissistic or dependent demands from the parent, locks the child down. And both the child and the parent fail to do a last piece of their own development The parent doesn't move on to the next chapter in their life by letting go of their child, which doesn't mean amputating, right? No one's talking about amputation here. We're talking about separating and differentiating. Your worries, mom, are your worries. Your problems are your problems. I love you, but I have a life to live. And by the way, you should be happy for me to live my life. So in enmeshed relationships, that assignment is reversed where the child is serving the parents. So that, that's the primary message that I like to give around enmeshment. And since we're not going to talk exclusively about enmeshment, I'll, I'll leave it at mm-hmm. that. Although one of the roles, in and in not surprising, in a sexually addicted family system is the surrogate spouse, the child who says, Mommy, don't be worried. I know Daddy has betrayed you. Uh, And you're lonely and you're hurt, but I'm your new man. I'm your new love object. And that gets reinforced because,
0: you know, at at least in my upbringing, I was the golden child that was the reason for my mom's existence. You know, I, I, you know, she wasn't happy. She wasn't happy with her life. She didn't like the way she presented the world. But if she had this golden child around, then she could say, here's a representation of me. And so all of my accomplishments were her accomplishments and also mm-hmm. i think there are some i just mention, i've heard clients and you've talked about this they hear from their mother or their father you know let me tell you all the problems of my marriage and let me tell you what your mother and father did and i can remember my mom going in her closet and saying what should i wear today you know i learned about garters which we don't even you know because my mother so You know, it wasn't overt, as you said, but there was this message, which is you're going to take care of me. You're going to understand my needs. You're going to help me feel better. And by the way, if you wouldn't, and I mind just for a second, there's a relationship between this and narcissism, right? Becoming the
1: grandiose object. For sure, for sure. You become elevated. And it's a precarious position for a child. On one hand, it feels good to be elevated, maybe above your siblings, if you have siblings, even above your other parent, right? The hell with mm-hmm. you. You're better than your father, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. a parent will use that deliberately. But there's a great cost. And that is an elevation. That is a feeding of the grandiosity we see in narcissism and an inflated sense of self. And and then, then you have a set of expectations of people that people never measure up, right? Because they're always failing in your eyes because you've been, you've been raised in this position of, of being on a pedestal. It's costly. The other issue is, is it makes it hard for that child to really bond with a co-equal. Or they will choose somebody they need to fix. They'll have multiple relationships which are dead ends or addicted or trouble or abusive. Um, they're very good at caretaking So you see, you often see kind of a yin-yang in those children. You see a narcissism, but you also see a codependent, what we used to call codependency, a caretaking, right? And as you've pointed out in some of your work, sort of loving and caring for others isn't pathological by any means. But in, in this case, if it becomes the primary way that you bond, you've got to be very careful who you choose to bond
0: with. I think you're explaining why, and I'll stop with all of this in a second, but um, I think, you know, I was married, I was in a heterosexual marriage for a number of years, and then I came out in my 20s, and I've been living with men, involved with men ever since. By the way, my anniversary was yesterday, again, 22 years together.
1: Congratulations.
0: Yeah. But I, I, you know, when I was married to, when I was married, my mother never liked any of the women I was involved with, not the ones I dated, not not Mm -hmm. the woman I was married to. But when I came out and I was living with a man, she said, oh, I have two sons. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I thought, well, that seems kind of odd. In fact, I thought, well, she would want the heterosexual son. Isn't that what every parent wants? And yet she liked the one who was with men more. And I think Mm -hmm. that kind of speaks to you. It sounded good at the time, but isn't that kind of what you're talking about in an
1: adult version? Sure. Yeah, it can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Or I was just with women who were awful. <laughs> no, I think you I think you nailed it. I think there's a a jealousy uh, competition, mm-hmm. right, uh around that. That, you know, we, we, we tease about that in the culture, right? But I, I don't think you're off on that.
0: Uh, well and I would say that many addicts Spouses find it very difficult to get along with their in-laws. And I think, you know, that's true for everyone, but the less you've let go of your child and the more you see them as an object of your primary affection, it's hard to let somebody else in. Absolutely. It's almost impossible. Um, So I want to go to the work because it's really important to me. And let let me say it this way to everyone who's listening. In my field, we've, you know, we're not a new field now. We've been at it for many decades. And one of the questions that has always come up and it comes up over and over and over and over again is what, if you're the addict or the family member, should I tell my kids? Do I tell my kids? I'm going to tell my kids. I told my kids for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. And then the children, adult children are often saying, well, how is this going to land in my life? And how's it going to affect my parenting? And what's it going to do? In fact, I want to say this, Dr. Adams, I had a couple the other day who's who had adult children and their children knew what it, they were told what had been going on in their parents' relationship. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they said was, well, we're wondering, are we going to end up with someone like you, dad? Are Mm -hmm. we going to end up? Is this what men are? Is this what marriage is? That Mm -hmm. you cheat and you lie. And so it took on a whole life of its own with the kids in terms of themselves and their future, because they had this detail that I'm not sure was helpful for them. So you wrote this wonderful book. I just want to let you folks know what it's called. We'll say it again. A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts. And I got to tell you, we've been looking for this book, Dr. Adams, for 15 years. Tell us a little bit.
1: Why did you write this? Well, so so first of all, I had, I had some co-authors. Let me just acknowledge them. Uh, Dr. Mary Meyer and Cully Vandegaard, uh, LCSW, uh, both CSATs as well. So we we got our heads together and did this and created, I, I thought, one voice, which was very difficult to do with three people, but we did it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's hard to see sometimes where my voice is versus their voices. Uh, we know where they're at. But.
0: Kind of like an enmeshed parent. In yes, yes. Right.
1: <laughs> well, I think we, we did a nice job of enmeshing and de-enmeshing when necessary. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, I had this book on my mind for, uh, for when I first entered personally recovery was, as an adult child of an alcoholic. My father is, uh, was an alcoholic and a sex addict. But there was no place to go with that story, right? You know, I could go to an adult child meeting. You could even go to a sex addicts meeting, but nobody's talking about growing up with the impact of a sex-addicted parent. So I didn't find a lot of places for that. So always in the back of my mind, I thought it was a story that needed to be told. And so, but I didn't want to do it alone because I thought if I'm going to write this book and ask people to tell their stories, I should tell mine. So uh, Cully and Mary, uh, so I've been, I've been announcing this at trainings in Uh, all the time. I'm looking for co-authors of this book. Well, finally, one day the two of them sat me down and said, we're in. So Mm -hmm. I thought, well, okay, but here's what I'm thinking. I think we need to tell our story. So they bravely also told their story. So the first three chapters of the book are our personal stories. And folks, I cannot tell
0: you what a depth of meaning that brings to the work. You know, It's the work that we do. It's one thing to say, oh, these people go through this. It's a completely different level to say I went through this, and in part that's the reason it's become my life's work. So thank you for for being honest about that. But where did you, that lead you, folks?
1: Well, you know, so so I, I've I've had an outline for this book in my head for years, as you you probably know. Once you get an idea, it starts to get created, and you 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 have it laid out before you write it out. And so uh, I also had done some some presentations on it. So I. I kind of offered an outline and we went from there. And uh, so we have in the book, we have outlined the characteristics of adult children, sort of in the spirit. So we borrowed from the adult children of alcoholic parents recovery model. But one of my other positions, which Cully and Mary were were 100% behind, was that we weren't going to... we weren't going to use other models to describe the adult child. So other models like the partner trauma model, the sex addiction model, the adult children of alcoholic model, the developmental immaturity model, the IFS model, all have tried to capture these adults who grow up in a sexually addicted home without calling it that. And you know as well as I do, Rob, that, that one, of the, one of the gifts of recovery is that you get, you get to feel identified and people often talk about these labels as confining and pathological. But the truth is when you get the right label, you get the right narrative and you get to tell your story. Right. And you get to say, Oh yeah, that's me. Right. And then that person also is sharing a story. That's me. So having the right narrative is critical. So these adult children who grew up as sexually addicted parents, and I'll give you a few characteristics of those families, which won't be, won't be a surprise to you, is that finally someone's telling my story and it's not being hidden underneath another umbrella, right? Even though the adult child shares similar experiences as the partner or a spouse to a sex addict, they're not the same. And Mm -hmm. uh, we often talk about partner-sensitive models. This is this is an adult child of a sex addict sensitive book. It only looks at the experience through adult children. We are not looking at the experience through the sex addict's eyes. We are not looking at it through the adult through the partner's eyes. This is sensitive to adult Mm -hmm. children, sex addicts who have grown up in these family systems of secrecy, duplicity. Subtle and not-so-subtle messages about sexuality, uh, witnessing inappropriate behavior, absence of normal modeling, avoidance of sexual discussion, or thinking that somehow if we talk about sex, it gives permission to our kids. This whole idea that sex education is permissive giving is really uh, an idea that to be
0: retired. Well, I just want to say about that, we want to educate our children about drugs, but we don't think that's going to make them use them more. <laughs> educating our kids about sex makes us think they're going to have it. So I know. just to say, none of that makes any sense, but please. Continue. No, it doesn't.
1: Well, so, you know, so you see these duplicit sort of value systems in, in sexually addictive families. So the family might have a sort of moral rigid code. Right. And, and so sexuality becomes uh, avoidant and shameful. While by the way, over here on the side, we're doing something secret. Right. Uh, Daddy's doing something secret. Mommy's doing something secret or daddy and daddy or mom or they're doing it together. Right. And, and so there's, and the kids, so I have some survey results, which won't be a big surprise to you, but the kids know what's going on and the, yeah. and, you know, and so I wanted, and I really wanted to test this. So I created a survey data. i give it a few questions. I have almost a hundred responses by now, and I'm hoping for more, but no surprise that the kids, all the adult children that I surveyed, 100% of them said I was negatively impacted by what my parent, my sexually addictive parent did. And 88% of them, think about this now, was aware or witnessed their parents' sexually addictive behavior. Almost nine out of 10 respondents said, oh, I knew what was going on. I knew what was going on. Does that mean that they saw something or they heard something. No, so here, here's the other thing. So when I asked the question, did you witness any mm-hmm. of your parents fighting, there was a lower response rate, about 60%. So that meant there was a portion of that sample that did not witness it, but knew it, that sensed it. So they're picking it up, which, which you know. What we, I have to ask you, what is it when you say they're picking it up? Well, they're picking up this sexual uh, acting out behaviors that are causing problems they're, the, they're tension, walking, the, secrets yeah, the tension the secret tension the mm-hmm. suspicion that daddy or mommy's having an affair uh, or that uh, they're using porn or i found the porn stash so they they know something's going on even if they're not witnessing fighting about it and no one's talking about it and no one's talking, so and what we've what one of the thesis of the book which has been my observation is it's the concept of Sexual shame is this intergenerational trauma link, right? So let's say, let's say, for example, a sexually addicted family and what we'll to make it heterosexual for ease for my sake here. So the father's acting out, we'll make it him the addict and the, and the mother mm-hmm. uh, is trying to cover it up and she's reacting and he's having affairs. And, you know, this whole this, this whole tension around the family system, this this could go on for the entire <laughs> developmental story of the kids, right? Mm-hmm. Some of these kids who are now adults are raised in homes, which this goes on from early childhood right through adolescence, and they're, mm-hmm. they're witnessing inappropriate behavior. They're hearing about accusations. Sex, you know, there's inappropriate sexual talk going on, over-focus on the body. Mom's accusing the daughter of being a whore when, in fact, she doesn't know what's going on. And pretty soon what's happening is the kids are getting shamed for their own natural curiosity. Mm-hmm. Right. And so let's just grow these grow these children up. They become adult children of sex addicts now, but nowhere to go with their story, right? This is who this is who the book's about. Well, it's also normal. I mean,
0: isn't that every family? That's how I grew up. I mean, people make those assumptions if my they do. family was like this. Mm-hmm.
1: They do, but they don't talk about it, right? They don't really talk about the affairs their parents are having. You know, they might talk about them drinking, but they won't talk about the affairs they're having. So let's say these these adult children grow up and get married, and they have they have children of their own, and pretty soon these adult children are being controlling of their children's sexuality because they don't want them turning out like daddy. So. Mm-hmm. So you don't need, and you know this as a trauma specialist, you don't need to witness trauma directly to be impacted by it. So one of the themes of the book is that we are tracking the sexual shame going through generations, and the adult children and their posturing around sexual matters and their roles are unintentionally carrying that message on. So let me give you some of the characteristics that we see with these with these um, adult children, if you like here. So they, they are often confused about what's normal sexually, right, and they can sometimes overreact and think that somebody's trying to exploit them when they, when they may just be innocently flirting with them. They miss the signs about what's appropriate sexually. They're confused about their bodies. They may be uncomfortable in their own bodies and their own gender. They may be uncomfortable with physical touch. They may have extremes in their sexual attitudes, either too permissive, you know, with no moral compass, or they may be the other extreme, over-moralizing sexuality at a cost of being playful, for example. They can be sexually compulsive and avoidant. I gave this talk to a group of sex addicts, Mm. uh, not a large group, not too long ago on the book, when it was first, um, just before it came out. And uh, one of the guys started crying. Mm. And um so I stopped and I said, what's going on? And he says, my dad. And what so this guy had been acting out himself and had been in recovery from affairs and and uh, sex workers and so forth. Typical pattern we see. And he had carried all this shame and it hit him that all that shame that he carried that he kept trying to recover from and make amends from make, make amends around was not just was not his shame only. It was also his father's shame that he was carrying. So we had this powerful moment of release as I was talking about the book. Oh, I get it. Some of the shame is not mine. Some of it is. What does that mean exactly? Well, that means that I would pick up the shame that was embedded in my family where I had to feel bad about what was natural and curious to me before I even got started doing what I wanted to do or felt compelled to do sexually. So I already had a sense of shame before my behavior became addictive. Mm-hmm. So there's two sources of shame then, right? And we know this, that sex addicts have shame and guilt and regret. We hope they do have some of it because of their behavior and the injury they caused to themselves and others. But now we're, we're reporting here with the adult children that there's, a, there's an underlying burden of shame that's not theirs to carry. They may be drawn to uh, be hypervigilant or unaware of the role of safety, trust in place. So they're very confused about, you know, is this, is this person wanting to flirt with me or what's Mm -hmm. going on here? Right. They may Mm -hmm. overcommit to those and try to fix those who hurt them emotionally and sexually. They may have difficulty sharing their (laughs) vulnerability and trusting in intimate relationships. And often Not surprising, adult children declare loyalties to their families of origin uh, in an effort to try to fix them. They allow their parents to burden them with their loneliness, be there for their comfort, stabilize them emotionally, almost always at a high cost to their intimate partnerships. You
0: know, I want to weigh in for just a moment because I had a friend, I have a, a friend truly who I was sitting with and he was saying how angry he was at his dad how he was acting, how he was living, all of this stuff. And I said, well, why are you so angry? And he said, because he's been having an affair for years. And mom keeps telling me about it. And I have to tell you, it makes me so mad. And every time she tells me about it, I'm just furious. How do I get away from this anger I have at my dad? Because, you know, I don't know how to stop being angry. And he's my father. I want to love him. And of course, my, my first thought was stop talking to your mom. But to mm-hmm. me, I, when as you're talking, I'm thinking of that kind of dynamic where I'm so loyal to Mom, the mesh parent, that I start turning on the other parent in their on their behalf. And I can't even see I lose my relationship with my dad, let's say, because I'm now seeing him through her eyes rather than his
1: eyes. Well also also what you're pointing to, if I could interrupt for a moment, is that he, the the adult child doesn't get to, get to have a separate anger. He has to take on the anger of his mother. Which is not good for him. He needs his own separate protest to his father. Say, so look at oh man, you should have never done this, and you betrayed me too. And I want mm-hmm. you to know that I'm hurt and angry by this, and I needed a different model. Never mind, mom. That's for you and she to work out. So what right. happens? When, when, that's what happens when the mother burdens the child, uh, the adult child, with their or anger. Or father. By the way. You want to say or, or father? Of course, of right. course. Because we have, we have uh, people who respond to the surveys where the, where the mothers mm-hmm. were also sexually addicted, is that it, it gets confusing. I have to carry mother's anger, so now I'm going to protect dad, which makes mother more angry. So mm-hmm. that's part of it. And you know, interestingly enough, and this won't be a surprise to you, 62% of our sample, when I asked this question, I was encouraged by my other parent, meaning the, the spouse, to find fault. Or mistrust my parent with the sexually addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. So over six out of ten, and seventy four percent of them reported I felt like the emotional caretaker of my other parents, and seventy eight percent reported I had continued to try to fix my family, and another large percentage, sixty two percent, felt like they were caught in a tug of war. So this survey data that I'm starting to pick up, which is still in is still I'm still working on, is really validating what you're what we're talking about here i I thought maybe what we do uh if you're willing is talk briefly about recovery so that people have some idea that uh, how they can get out of this because you're bringing up an important point here right what do i do with my dad my anger at my dad
0: may i ask i have one question before we do that because this is the one i hear the most often and i don't have an answer for this so i'm told that dad's been fooling around yeah i have an angry spouse. That i'm working with a therapist and they say let's say it's a woman i'm going to tell everything mm-hmm. about your dad did to my kids and you know then and so mm-hmm. they do out of anger and perhaps out of bad boundaries and all of that mm-hmm. and not realizing how that's going to affect their children mm-hmm. i hear all kinds of mm-hmm. things from those children like i wish i'd never known all the way to i you don't you shouldn't mm-hmm. spend time with dad anymore because basically taking sides which makes it our hard work harder so my question really is, and I know we're going to go to the rest of it, is if I, and I'll take it for me, if I'm working with a sex addict and who's saying my wife wants the, me to tell the kids or she or he wants to tell the kids or there's this whole movement toward, you know, keep the kids involved and let them know what's going on and, you
1: know, let the, you know, all of that. Is that the right thing to do or does it depend? Yeah, that's a, that's a million dollar question. And that's what let's just put out to you. The, so, the, so, again, if we're tracking what we put in the book. As well as what, so this was our conclusions, uh, three of us, based on the hundreds of cases we've seen, as well as the survey data. The truth of the matter is, is the sexual shame and the dysfunction that comes from an addicted, sexually sexually addicted family is passed on not just by the sex addict, but also by the spouse or partner if they're not careful. And the adult child can get angry with both of them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the short answer is it depends. And some of the some of the respondents in my survey said, I didn't want to know about this stuff Mm -hmm. or I didn't want to know about it in the way that it came to me. You Mm -hmm. know, so I think ultimately my wiser part says it should be on the addict to tell the children Mm. uh, what's going on. And it, it certainly, um, I think weaponizing disclosure of secrets to children mm-hmm. should, be, should be completely off the table. Nobody gains from that. And the, mm-hmm. the risk if a partner or a spouse, weapon, so that's what they do, they weaponize the secrets against mm-hmm. the addict, is that the adult child will turn on the spouse. And you don't want that. So, so I would say that that is a clear recommendation. Mm-hmm. Stop weaponizing the disclosure. I would treat it carefully and I would start off conservatively. I don't mean politically, but just conservatively. Listen, dad and mom are fighting. Dad says, look at, you know, I've done some things that were hurtful. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll answer some questions if you have them. And as you get older, I'll answer more. But I think the the story has to be delivered sensitively based on the kids' ages and so forth. But remember, most of these kids know. Most of them know. And and it and they they need to be able to talk about it. So we can't avoid that either, right? right? We can't be so cautious about what happens if we bring this up that we don't want to invalidate their reality. No, exactly. So there is a need there is a need to talk about it. But I think it has to be done carefully, ideally led by the addict. as as taking responsibility. But the weaponizing of disclosure has to be taken off the models of treatment right away. That's That's the one thing that's coming out of the data. And the one thing we concluded in our book, we were focused primarily on the sex addiction for a large part of the book. And then we started unraveling some stories and we thought, you know, we really need to speak to the whole system. And the other thing we want to say here, Rob, is that, you know, this is one of my conclusions. I think the amends process from the addict to the children, and for that matter, to the spouse, I think it has to be an ongoing deal. I think this idea that I'm, I'm doing a living amends can be a cop-out. And so if, I, if I'm a sex addict and I burden my children with infidelity, witnessing or hearing about it, and they've seen that I've hurt my spouse or partner, and now they're 25 or 26 years old, and I see them dating somebody who's trouble, I owe them an amends. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I say, look, I see you having some trouble. I'm sorry I burdened you with my story. And now Mm -hmm. I see it playing out to you. And I have to Mm -hmm. say once again that that shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. One of the conclusions that I'm reaching that I'm going to put into my keynote at the symposium is that that amends has to be uh, a living document. Mm-hmm. especially for the children. At, at critical stages as a parent, your parenting is not over just because you've entered recovery. And w- we might make the same argument with, with spouses, right? That there needs to be a living amends. The trouble is is sometimes that can get weaponized or or used in a way that's divisive rather than healing. Which is a whole other
0: book. <laughs> yes, that's right. But you, you know, and I, I, st- I interrupted you with this and I wanted, you were going to make, I know that you were time limited. I'm sensitive to that. And well, you were yeah, going I thought- to talk
1: about recovery. Yeah. Well, that's, so let's let's kind of, let me just give you some bullet points on it, okay? Just so, I think there has to be some recognition that this is not just about uh, my dad being an alcoholic. This is about being impacted by sexually addictive behavior and that this shame is not minor. So it has to be a recognition and a permission for the children to be able to see that this their carried shame is not theirs and to identify which of these characteristics they're carrying and which are the roles so we we identified roles i don't know if you remember but in the adult child literature there was a responsible and hero child for jean Bradshaw. yeah and so you know you, the idea was was stop being a hero and, get, and become authentic well mm-hmm. we've changed that a bit what we see is the hero in the sexually addicted family is the moral champion, the priest, mm-hmm. the rabbi, mm-hmm. the pastor, the police officer, somebody who kind of counters the family shame and starts instituting mm-hmm. rules for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so you wanna know, and so we also talked about the caretaker, the surrogate spouse, the seducer and the addict, the truth teller. We have these roles that we've outlined in the book. So you've got to know what your role is and you gotta start de-rolling, right? That's not my job to confront everybody if I'm the truth teller, right, and run around and tell everybody. But it may be my responsibility to sit my father down or my mother down and say, look, here's what I went through. I need you to hear me. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's part of releasing the shame. Not surprising, a lot of these adult children will become addicts themselves, so they got to face their own addiction. Mm-hmm. They have to grieve the losses. The truth of the matter is once they start recovery, some of the people in the family do not follow. And you, we see mm-hmm. this all the time, right? Is that when a system closes up, it yes. can leave the person out. That's right. And oftentimes mm-hmm. the people who have been complaining about the sex addict parent will turn, <laughs> will turn on you if you start telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And so you need to be prepared for loss because mm-hmm. you're going to have to choose the integrity of your own self and your commitment to your life and your own partner from the loyalty and the emmeshment in this system. Often the system will turn on you, sadly. Now, it isn't always the case, but you, you, you want to be prepared for that. You need to have a new set of values. What are my love values? It's okay to play sexually. I don't have to marry the first person I have sex with, or, you know, what, what are, what are your, what are your values? Right. You know, and how? So you need to. That's really critical in the adult children sex addict journey.
0: Reclaiming myself, finding out who I am, and reclaiming. Finding out, together. finding out mm-hmm. before
1: reclaiming. That's right. Declaring mm-hmm. who you are, mm-hmm. and then clearly. And I'm I'm going to end here with this. Uh, two things: go slow in dating. <laughs> don't right. Rush, don't rush it, man. You're you're you have got the wrong template if you're an adult child of a sex addict. Slow it right. up. Uh, not at a snail's pace, but. Slow it up, vet the person, vet mm-hmm. your own, and, and then learn to manage your interactions with your family differently. If your mother wants to complain about your sex addict father, look at mom, I'm not available. You guys have to work this out. How's the weather out there? Right? You've got right. to learn you've got to learn to change the topics. So those are the general outlines. A lot more to be revealed. You can find it in the book, A Light in the Dark. Yeah, I wanted to actually say that, Dr. Adam's book is called,
0: and and colleagues, it's called A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts, something that they've needed, clinicians have needed. And Dr. Adams, you know, as always, I'm so, so grateful for your work. The book was just released on Amazon. It is out and available to anyone everywhere. I think it applies to both therapists and to the general public. It does. Yep.
1: Yep. Absolutely. I, I would well. I would say that. Remember that it's critical. As good as your as good as your therapist is at their model, it's important that they see you through the eyes of the narrative that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. And so, if if they haven't read the book and they want to use their model that they love a lot in their treatment, that's not a bad thing. But it may not get the job done if they're not familiar with the with the lens that we're talking about.
0: And you've done an amazing job of focusing that lens because I have a feeling if we had a longer conversation and I do have a question, which we're not gonna have time to answer today, is how does this differentiate from the children of alcoholics? What makes this, and by the way, this is why why you have to read the book, folks, but I have a feeling there are some characteristics that are similar and then there are some that are very drastically different. And I would love, perhaps we could have another conversation about the difference between families because I I, I would love to have that conversation. is the is the key difference by the way i'll leave it well we will hopefully talk about that in another conversation because i really want to have hopefully dr adams will be number one and number two on our most popular podcast dr adams how can people find you or i know you do workshops I i refer to them all the time how would they find you get involved with your work because they can actually actively get help not just read one of your books
1: yeah, so probably the easiest way, which links to all, all the different websites I'm connected to, is just go to drkenadams.com, drkenadams.com, will probably be the simplest way. Well, perhaps
0: a lot like me, Dr. Adams, I just say, put in Dr. Rob Weiss and sex, and you will find <laughs> lots and lots and lots of stuff. Again, Dr. Adams, thank you. I know you have to run. Folks, read the book. Learn what he has to say. Go to these workshops if you're involved or or recovering from sex addiction. This isn't just about your kids. This is your own history and story, too. So thank you again, Dr. Adams. We will talk some more. And uh, I'm so grateful for the book, A Light in the Dark. Thank you, Dr. Weiss. Check you soon. Bye-bye. Bye now, folks. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.